We're going to read the word of the Lord in a number of different texts this morning, starting in Ezra, Ezra chapter 8, and then we'll turn to the New Testament, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Ezra records the history following the Israelites' captivity in Babylon, and in Ezra 8 we're looking at a part of the history of their return from Babylon to the promised land. So we're going to read some select verses here from Ezra 8, starting at Ezra 8, verse 1. These are now the chief of their fathers, and this is the genealogy of them that went up with me from Babylon in the reign of Artaxerxes the king of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush. We'll jump ahead now to verse 15. And I gathered them together to the river that runneth to Ahava. And there we abode, there abode we in tents three days. And I viewed the people and the priests, and found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, for Ariel, for Shemaiah, and for Elnathan, and for Jerob, and for Elnathan, and for Nathan, and for Zechariah, and for Meshulam, chief men, also for Joyrib, and for Elnathan, men of understanding." And I sent them with commandment unto Ido, the chief at the place Casaphia. And I told them what they should say unto Ido and to his brethren the Nethanims at the place Casaphia, that they should bring unto us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God upon us they brought a man of understanding, of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah, with his sons and his brethren, eighteen, and Hashabiah, and with him Jeshaiah, of the sons of Merari, his brethren and their sons, twenty. Also of the Nethanims, whom David and the princes had appointed for the service of the Levites, two hundred and twenty Nethanims, all of them were expressed by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God, to seek of Him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way. Because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. And then going down to verse 31, Then we departed from the river of Ahava, on the twelfth day of the first month, to go unto Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, 
And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy, and of such as lay in wait by the way. And we came to Jerusalem, and abode there three days. Now let's turn to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Again, reading this in light of the sixth petition, lead us not into temptation. We start our reading at verse 6, and we read through verse 15. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Now these things were our examples, to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge ye what I say. And then finally we turn to 2 Corinthians Chapter 4. And there we read just the first two verses. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Thus far we read God's holy and inerrant Word. May God add His blessing upon the reading of His holy Scriptures. It's on the basis of these passages of Scripture and others as well that we find the instruction of the Hedeberg Catechism, Lord's Day 52. This week we focus on question and answer 127. In the weeks to come, God willing, we will look at the final two questions and answers. Question 127, which is the sixth petition? The answer And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is, 
since we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment. And besides this, since our mortal enemies, the devil, world, and our own flesh, cease not to assault us, do Thou therefore preserve and strengthen us by the power of Thy Holy Spirit, that we may not be overcome in this spiritual warfare, but constantly and strenuously may resist our foes, till at last we obtain a complete victory. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, this sixth petition is a petition that every God-fearing parent makes, not only for himself or herself, but that the parent also makes on behalf of the children. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's the petition that the parent makes in the morning time as the parent says goodbye to the child and the child walks out the door to go to school. Father, wilt Thou guard this child that this child not be led into temptation. It's the petition that the parent makes as the child grows up, gets a driver's license, and goes out on Friday night with friends. Father, guard this child that he or she might not be led into temptation. It's a petition that parents never stop making for their children, That even when the parents are old and the children have left the home and started their own home, the Christian parent continues earnestly beseeching the Father that the Father would guard the children from being led into evil. And that helps us see here the same reality that we have said of so many of the previous petitions. We are asking something of God. When we make this sixth petition, we are not simply making a statement of reality. We are not simply making an observation about what God has in His grace done in the past, but we are here earnestly beseeching God for something. We're asking God to do, to perform an activity that of ourselves we would be unable to do. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. It's a prayer that the office bearers make for you, the members of this congregation. Guard this church. 
from evil. It's a petition that grows out of love. The more we love the neighbor, the more we pray, lead us collectively as a body. Lead us not into temptation. And so let's look then this morning at the sixth petition, considering it under the theme, Seeking God's Preservation and Strength. First, we do this urgently. Second, we do so faithfully. And third, we are to do it expectantly. Seeking God's preservation and strength. If we do not understand how weak we are of ourselves, and the reality is there will be no urgency in our making of this six petition. And the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism understood that very well, that the starting point here is to see our dependence upon God. And so the writers say at the outset, what does it mean? We're asking not to be led into temptation. That is, since we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment. We cannot stand but a moment. To stand is, of course, to be understood spiritually here. We're not speaking of the physical strength to stand up, though parents do rejoice when their young child reaches that stage in life when they can stand up and walk of themselves. But that, of course, is not what the catechism is about here. It's speaking of the spiritual strength to stand. Having the spiritual strength to stand means that one has the ability to walk faithfully unto God. Having the spiritual strength to stand means that one is not quickly or easily knocked over with the temptations that buffet us as we go through this earthly pilgrimage. And the confession that we make at the outset here is, I do not have the ability of myself to stand. We are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand for a moment. We do not always so clearly recognize our inability to stand. In fact, there are times in life where we would think that we could stand for perhaps a moment or two. Times in life where God gives unto us a measure of prosperity. Times where we have health and strength. We're stable financially. And it's at those times in life when God has removed the heavy weight of afflictions from us, that then we are inclined to think, perhaps I could stand for a while. Perhaps I am strong enough. And I don't need to cry out with urgency from the depths of my heart, lead me not into temptation. 
And so it is necessary then that again, God give commandment and that He send into us the thorns of afflictions, the heartache of loss, the walls of solitude which close in upon us, so that we be reminded again how weak and frail we are. And I cannot stand for a moment. And I need God's grace. Strong men and strong women have tried to stand of their own strength. Indeed, strong God-fearing men and strong God-fearing women have tried to stand of their own strength. But the result of anyone who has ever attempted to stand of his own strength is failure. Catastrophic failure. Eve, as she was there in the Garden of Eden, imagined that she could stand without the assistance of her husband, without seeking his guidance and his leadership. Imagine that she did not have to seek the guidance and the wisdom of him who sits on high and that she would be able to resist temptation. David, strong, valiant, courageous David, who stood up against lions and bears, who defended Israel against the enemies of God's covenant, imagined that he could stand of himself as he looked out of his window and saw Bathsheba bathing. Peter, courageous, bold Peter, thought that he could stand as he took his eyes off of Jesus Christ while walking on the water. Strong, faithful, believing, God-fearing men and women have imagined that they could stand of their own strength. And what happened? That's why the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us of this truth, that we cannot stand but for a moment. And how easy it is, is it not, for the alternative thinking to start rising up in our minds. To start thinking that we can stand for a moment. Of course, we know better than to say that. We would not go telling others that I am so strong of myself that I could stand for a moment. And yet, without our even realizing it, that type of thinking can start to rise up within us. How is it that we start to think of ourselves that we can stand for a moment? How can we see this thinking? Well, perhaps it shows itself in this way, beloved. It reveals itself as a willingness to rest upon former successes in life. That because previously in my life I've been able to stand up and resist temptation in this way. 
And because previously I've had to fight long and hard against this temptation, but I've overcome that temptation, that now the temptation is I can rest upon those previous successes. I can coast for a little while. Or, another way in which we can be guilty of trying to stand of our own selves is by failing to seek divine help and strength during times of trials and afflictions. That when God sends a difficulty or a burden in my life, instead of me beseeching God for the grace to bear up under that affliction, I simply try to force myself through it. Do we urgently cry out, lead us not into temptation? And then the Catechism goes on describing why it is that we must be urgent in making this petition. And besides this, Since our mortal enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, cease not to assault us. That's why we make this petition with urgency, because we are engaged in a battle. And from a certain perspective, it's an unfair battle in which we are engaged. It's three against one. It is a battle which the enemy is engaged in unto the death. The Catechism says here, describing the enemies, that they are mortal enemies. Our mortal enemies cease not to assault us. These enemies are wicked who rejoice in iniquity. These enemies are those who are quite comfortable doing their work under the cover of darkness. These enemies are masters of guile and of deception. These enemies are very good at pulling the wool over your eyes so that you do not even see how He has led you into temptation. And these enemies against whom the Christian fights are relentless in pursuing you. The Catechism says that they cease not to assault us. These enemies do not require a break. They do not grow weary in confronting you to fall into sin. They will confront you tomorrow morning when you wake up for work. They will confront you Friday night, as you make plans, it will confront you in church on Sunday morning. Since our mortal enemies cease not to assault us. Who are they? Three enemies they are. We do well to know and be able to identify these three enemies. Every general in the army 
knows the importance of being able to identify who is the enemy. If you don't know who the enemy is, then you don't know where to look for him. And you will not know what tactics he employs. Who is the enemy? First of all, the enemy is the devil. The devil is invisible. Which shows at the outset here how difficult it is to engage against this enemy. It's one thing to engage in a physical enemy that you can see with your physical eyes. We're very tangible people. And we like tangible, physical, visible things. We can relate to and we can understand and process things that we can understand with our physical senses. But the devil is not physical, but the devil is a fallen angel. And thus, he is to our eyes invisible. But the fact that he is invisible in no way limits the power or the strength of the devil, but the Scriptures say of the devil that he goes forth as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so to pray, lead us not into temptation is to pray, Father, open up my eyes so that I might be able to see how the devil is at work in my life. I can't see him with my physical eyes, but I need my spiritual senses to be heightened so that I can see where the devil is employing his methods, his tactics in my life. The enemy, who is it? It's the world. The world. When we think of the world, we tend to think immediately of sinful rulers in the world. We think of principalities and powers in high places who make rules and commandments and enforce those rules and commandments. And we think of the anti-Christian rules and laws which sadly so oftentimes are put in place by ungodly rulers. And it is true that the world does in part consist of those rulers, those powers that be. And so, when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we are praying, God, so work in the lives of those rulers that these rulers might not have ungodly laws. That they might not forbid us from gathering into God's house on the Sabbath day. Lead us not into temptation. But the world is more than simply the powers, the evil powers in high places. The world is right in our homes through the media and through technology, through the entertainment and through the advertisements of the world. The world is right in our home, on our phones, with Snapchat, with Facebook, with Twitter, with YouTube. And so when we pray, lead us not into temptation, 
we are praying, God, give unto me the grace not to permit these platforms of the world to entice my heart to want anything that would go against Thy will. Lead me not into temptation. Who is the enemy? The devil, the world. Number three, the catechism speaks of our sinful flesh. Galatians 5, verse 17 shows us the wickedness of our flesh. We read there, for the flesh lusteth against the Spirit. And the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. That's the power of that old man within us, that we cannot do the things that we would. There is a war within us wherein the new man desires to live a life of obedience and gratitude unto God, but wherein that old man of sin still desires and delights in and derives great satisfaction from walking in ways of wickedness and rebelliousness unto God. And we do well to understand and confess that there is great power in that old man of sin within us. Yes, we are born again. And yes, we have that life of Jesus Christ within us. But that does not mean that we are now immune to temptations. It doesn't mean then that we no longer have to wage a battle and fight against the desires of that old man of sin. And so when we pray that sixth petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we're praying Father, give unto me the grace to resist what that old man of sin within me desires. When we begin to understand how strong the enemy is, that threefold enemy, then we see that of ourselves it is impossible for us to stand but a moment. And so the only thing that we can do is to follow the example of Ezra of old. There is Ezra. He's preparing to lead God's people out of captivity and to take them to the land of promise. But he looks out, and as he looks around, he sees that there are a great number of enemies which are lurking, waiting, under the cover of darkness, using deceptiveness even, waiting to pounce upon that apparently helpless and small remnant which would make their way out of captivity back to Jerusalem. And so we read in Ezra 8, verse 23, So we fasted and besought our God for this. And He was entreated of us. Faith in God directs us unto the One alone who is able to give us the grace to resist 
temptation. Faith directs us unto the Almighty God who gives unto His people the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Catechism calls attention here to the Holy Spirit. In the middle of the answer, do thou therefore preserve and strengthen us by the power of thy Holy Spirit. And the Word of God makes clear that the Spirit is uniquely qualified for this work of strengthening us so that we might be able to resist temptation. The Spirit is called holy, not without reason. For the Spirit is the one who consecrates unto God and who separates from all that is evil. The Spirit of God is the one who strengthened Jesus Christ so that Jesus would be faithful unto God. Matthew 3, verse 16, And lo, the heavens were opened unto Him, and He, Jesus, saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon Him. If Jesus Christ He did the Spirit of God in Him so that He would be faithful throughout His earthly ministry. How much more so do we not need the Spirit of God? And so we beseech the Spirit. We pray to God for the Spirit. We are to be like Ezra of old who fasted and besought God for help from on high. We are to make use of the proper ways in which God is pleased to give us help. Perhaps some are very discouraged, having fought against a sin recognizing that there is a sin and yet feeling like they cannot make any progress in overcoming that particular temptation. And because of a lack of growth, have come to the point where he or she is ready to throw one's hands up in despair and say, I can't do it. Simply too much for me. I can't overcome this temptation. If that describes you, then be encouraged. You are not the first or the only one who has felt an inability to overcome the power of temptations. But others, indeed all of God's children, feel at times in their lives that sense of being insufficient for the work of overcoming besetting sins in one's lives, in one's life. But what do we do then when we reach that moment in our life? We do well to heed the words of Jesus Christ to His disciples when they could not cast out the demons. 
This kind cannot be cast out except with prayer and fasting. And that is precisely what Ezra did as Ezra besought the help of God from on high. We fasted and besought our God for this. Fasting has become very unpopular in the day and age in which we live. It's recommended that we are to eat three square meals a day. It's for your health, it is said, that you should eat these three meals a day. But that type of thinking is relatively novel in comparison to what for thousands of years was taught and practiced. And altogether, apart from the health benefits of fasting, the Word of God teaches the power of fasting. Are you struggling with casting out a certain devil, a demon in your life as it were, a sin that you fall into time and time again? Then I ask you this Question, have you fasted? Have you abstained from eating food for a certain period of time while praying that God would give you the strength to be faithful? We mustn't imagine that we are wiser than God that science has taught us new things that go beyond what God in His Word has revealed unto us. And because of what doctors or physicians are saying, that therefore this is what I must do, the Word of God speaks highly of fasting and prayer. In what way then does the Holy Spirit preserve and strengthen us? It is what specifically are we asking the Spirit to do in this particular petition? The Catechism explains here that we may not be overcome in this spiritual warfare. That's what we are asking the Spirit to do, is to strengthen us so that we might not be overcome in this spiritual warfare. Now some might protest at this point or object, is not the catechism being too modest in its expectations? Could not the catechism have set the bar a little bit higher in what we are asking of God? Could not we have asked God for a complete and a total deliverance over the enemy? Could not we have asked God to obliterate and destroy the enemy so that no longer we have to face any temptations from the enemy? Are we not being, are we not setting our expectations somewhat low when we ask of God that we might not be overcome in this spiritual warfare? To answer that question, we must understand it's not as if this is the only thing that we are asking. 
we are expecting a complete deliverance. And we'll look at that expectation later on. We do look forward to the day when God will fully give us victory over the evil one. But for now, what we are asking God is for the grace that we might not be overcome. And when we consider the strength of that threefold enemy and how relentlessly the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh assault us through this earthly pilgrimage, then is it not a remarkable thing if God should give unto us the grace not to be overcome by that threefold enemy? If you consider the power and the strength and the resources that are available to that threefold enemy in comparison to the limited power and strength that you have of yourselves, then is it not astounding that God gives unto us creatures of the dust the ability not to be overcome by that threefold enemy? Indeed, what a statement it is that it could be said of a saint who has passed away that this saint was not overcome in the 60, 70, 80 years that he walked upon this earth. He was not overcome by or in the spiritual warfare. That's what we're praying. When we pray, lead us not into temptation. And then, in addition, we're asking God to give unto us grace so that we might fight. That we might constantly and strenuously Resist our foes. Praying that God would lead us not into temptation is not a request for passivity on our end. It's not giving us the right to step back and say, okay, I'm going to commit this entirely to the hands of the Lord. I'm going to let the Lord take care of fighting this battle while I sit here passively doing nothing, not engaging Against in battle against the threefold enemy. But praying, lead us not into temptation, is to pray that God would work in us and through us so that we would will and do His good pleasure. It's a prayer that God through the Holy Spirit would so actuate and strengthen our will so that we might be faithful soldiers in the battlefield of Jesus Christ. And so we must be careful then as we make this petition that we do not tempt God. We read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 9, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. To tempt God is to walk as close as possible to sin, as it were, to flirt with sin, 
while still expecting that God is going to perform such a wonderful and miraculous deliverance that I am not going to fall into that temptation. To tempt God is to ask God to work in ways which go against His normal providential workings. To tempt God is to walk into a place where I know that the desires and the lusts of the flesh are going to rise up very strongly within me, but still expecting that God is going miraculously to deliver me from falling into that temptation. We must not tempt God by walking as close to sin as possible, but still expecting God to give us a way out. Lead us not into temptation means that as a dating individual, I am very careful about where I go on dates so that I am not led into a spot where I am tempted to break the seventh commandment. Lead me not into temptation means that if I understand that, if I struggle to control the bottle and how much I drink, then I do not go to those places, to the bar or alone by myself in the home, where I know I am going to face a strong temptation to drink in excess. If I know that I struggle to be sanctified in my use of the phone, then lead me not into temptation means I seek accountability and help so that I am not in a spot alone with the phone looking at things that the Christian ought not to be delighting in. One cannot say that they are earnestly asking God, lead me not into temptation when they walk as close to fire as they possibly can, expecting not to get burnt. Lead us not into temptation. We make this petition expectantly, expecting that God will give unto us triumph. Catechism concludes until at last we obtain a complete victory. We fight expecting that there will come an end to this warfare. We come expecting that the end of this warfare will not mean that we must surrender and give up to the forces of evil but we fight expecting that it will be the enemy which is forced to surrender. We fight and we pray for the grace to be faithful unto God, knowing that in principle, the victory is ours in Jesus 
Christ. We pray with the eyes of faith fixed upon our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we behold how He fought, how He endured, and how He resisted even unto blood. We see how the mortal enemy bruised the heel of our precious Lord and our Savior, Emmanuel. We see how the Lion of the tribe of Judah was despised and rejected of man. And yet we behold that that very rejection, bleeding, and death of Emmanuel was used by God so that you and I might overcome and might not be destroyed by the wicked one. And so may the knowledge of the finished work of our Lord and of our Savior encourage you to be faithful. The more that we come to know and to see what God has performed for us in Jesus Christ, and how merciful and how gentle and how gracious God has been in His dealings with us, the more we want to live lives of grateful obedience unto Him. The more we behold the holiness and the majesty of our God as He sits enthroned in the heavens, the more we realize how serious of an offense it is to be led into temptation. And so we pray with urgency and with faithfulness and reliance upon God, lead us not into temptation. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we do plead of Thee, wilt Thou give unto us the preserving and the strengthening power of Thy Holy Spirit. Wilt Thou work in us that we might be transformed not into the image of this world, but into the glorious and holy image of Thy Son, Jesus Christ. Wilt Thou forgive the sins committed throughout this worship service. And hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.